The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Get ready for the election season. Yes, there are seven presidential elections scheduled for Costa Rica, Cuba, Colombia, Paraguay, Mexico, Brazil, and Venezuela. Let's find out what they mean for investors. My guest, Alejandro Werner, he is the director for Western Hemisphere Department for the International Monetary Fund, and he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Alejandro, thank you very much for being here. All right, so we have these presidential elections. You can really uh, select which one you want to begin with, maybe Mexico or, or Brazil or so on. But what do you think is the most important theme that we need to understand? Thanks for having me. And, and you're right. I mean, Latin America is going through a very interesting period. On the one hand, a, 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 a world economy that it's uh, just at the right point. I mean, with growth uh, almost touching 4% uh, for the year, commodity prices going up, very lax financial markets, so abandoned financing. But on the other hand, uh, some risk coming from outside, but domestically, a lot of political uncertainty. And if we move to the two largest economies in the region, Mexico and Brazil, both of them having very competitive election process. In the case of Mexico, you have, I mean, one of the candidates, Andres Manuel López Obrador, maybe showing up in the polls with 30% of the voters' intentions. And the other two candidates, uh, Jose Antonio Meade from the PRI, uh, that it's in government, that party now with 20% of the vote. And... Anaya from the PAN with another 20% uh, of the vote. Very widespread uh, differences in terms of their policy policy proposals. I mean, Mid and Anaya, uh, much more continuity. And López Obrador, much more, let's say, critical of uh, uh, what has been done in the last few years. And that opening up some degree of uncertainty that is weighing on in investment. An important element to highlight, the Mexican election is only one round election. Whoever gets a simple majority becomes uh, the president. Then we turn to Brazil. I mean, Brazil also having elections in October. This is a two-round uh, election. But still, the Brazilian election is also very, very wide. You have one candidate that is run, running ahead in the polls that is a former president, Lula da Silva, who's also go, going through a process and he has been found guilty by two levels of their judicial system or of corruption in in the past. So uh, there is a, a legal discussion of whether he will be able to run or or not. Then you have another right-wing candidate, a Bolsonaro, that is running second, and then a very open field of candidates with a smaller percentage of, of the vote. And what makes it the, the Brazilian election so important is that Brazil is still facing significant economic challenges in the next uh, few years. Brazil just went 
through two years of recession in which the economy contracted in each year by three and a half percent. It's recently coming out of that process, but still need significant changes in its fiscal policy, in its trade policies, in its tax policies, and make the economy much more efficient. So Brazil really needs a president with a strong mandate to be able to implement a very important reform agenda. Will the voters, do you believe, in Brazil offer someone that mandate to get these things accomplished? Well, it's too early in the in the campaign season. I mean, the campaign has not even started yet. So we, we will see how things shape, shape up. But I think uh, one has to remember also that there's a huge anti-establishment sentiment in Brazil coming through out of the largest corruption ha- scandal in the country's history, first affecting their state-owned oil company, Petrobras, then affecting one of its major construction companies, Odebrecht. So, I mean, the population is looking for a new alternatives. So, so that opens the door for a, a Macron-type consensus, but it also opens up the door for risks that catch the popular attention in the election season, but then uh, gives us very weak governments when they, they, they reach office. No? And that's why uh, those elections are, are, are so important. In, in other countries in Latin America, I would say the election process uh, uh, generates much less uncertainty vis-a-vis economic policies, the case of Colombia, the case of Paraguay, the case of Costa Rica. I think people are expecting, uh, uh, are seeing much more continuity in the economic uh, framework and on the back, as I was saying, of recovery of copper prices, oil prices, agricultural goods prices, where these countries are major exporters of, uh, that paints a relatively good picture for Latin America in 2018. So if you were a foreign investor and you were looking to deploy some capital in Latin America, and of course, you know, just to sort of say it as a geographic region doesn't really do it justice because you're focusing on specific industries or specific types of investments, but where do you see the risk-reward profile that you believe a foreign investor would accept uh, in Latin America to actually put some capital to work? Okay, I would highlight, I mean, obviously the case of Argentina. Argentina went through an important uh, political change two years ago. The Macri administration just got a a significant vote of confidence in a midterm election. And this government is trying to reach macroeconomic stability in, in, in this country and also implement significant structural reforms in energy, telecom, infrastructure. So I think a lot of pent-up demand for investment in this country, a lot of opportunities. Secondly, I would say, I mean, Chile, Peru, Colombia, countries that had to adjust when commodity prices fell, but now that commodity prices are going back up, I think they're entering the right phase uh, of the cycle. And I would highlight, I mean, the energy sector in Mexico. Mexico went through a very important energy reform uh, three years ago. Now it's being implemented. Mexico used to be the, the country that was... A, a more close to local to private both domestic and international investment in the oil sector now it has changed that so i think there's a lot of opportunities in the energy sector in mexico to uh, uh, undertake important investments uh, highlighting some regions in latin america and let me just highlight i mean when you look at panama and the dominican republic these are countries that have been growing at 5 6% for the last 7 years and I think this dynamism will continue. I mean, Panama also as a logistic hub with a very important airport and obviously with the canal. 
and the DR with very important uh, investment in the tourism sector. I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Alejandro Werner is the director of Western Hemisphere Department for the International Monetary Fund. Thank you very much for your views on Latin America. Look forward to having you in the future. Much appreciated. Coming. Japan's central bank governor said today that the country's economy is finally close to its target inflation rate of around 2%. Let's find out what this means with our own Vincent Signorella. He is our global macro strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins me here in our 1130 studios. All right, Vincent, so what about these comments? He was speaking at Davos, and he also mentioned not only the economic uh, the economics of the country, but the inflation target of 2% and the unemployment rate of 2.7%. Well, Japan's economy is definitely improving, but hitting the inflation target, unless you measure it in football fields, they're nowhere close. I mean, the the CPI X food, X fresh food, one of the um, marks to mark that the Bank of Japan uses for an inflation target on a year-over-year basis is 0.3%. Their target is 2%. So I think we have a ways to go before we hit Japan's inflation target. Okay, but you were telling me earlier, and there was a lot of movement. I was watching the Japanese yen, and we're trading right now 108.78. Mm-hmm. Were his comments, uh, I don't want to say misconstrued, but what was he trying to get at, do you believe? Well, well traders felt like it, that his comments were taken out of context. And what we understand is that he said what he said was exactly what he said, but he kind of chuckled after he said it. So if unless we have a central banker all of a sudden they're developing a sense of humor. Got um, it. So he was I, doing maybe like a stand-up routine in Davos. Well, I don't think it was that. I think what he was really addressing was the longer-term prospects of Japanese inflation are approaching target. And I think you hear that from every central banker. And unfortunately, we've heard that from every central banker for the better part of the last five years. So putting things into context, you you can see that the eventually the goal is for Japan to reach their 2% target, as is the United States, as is Germany, the Eurozone, et cetera, et cetera. Well, everybody wants to reach whatever target they everybody set. Everybody wants to reach 2%. They change it, right? Yes. But one of the things that really strikes me as odd, to be honest, with central bankers in this, in this day and age, especially Draghi with the Eurozone, is is in a real sweet spot. He's got unemployment falling. The economy is growing. So what? That inflation isn't going up. We're not. If this were 2011 or 2000 or 2009, where there people were talking about the potential for an actual depression, when you see inflation dropping and you think, oh, my God, depression could be around the corner. That's when you worry about the lack of inflation and prices dropping. But when your economy is growing and your employment rate is falling and you don't have price pressure, that's to me Time for a party, not for for worry. So why do you believe they say this? I think they're concerned that there is always, you know, we're at the long end of the growth cycle. This has been a very, very long run. A lot of economists see this as a long in the tooth and that a recession is somewhere perhaps around the corner. And if they don't get prices up and if they don't get inflation up, the opportunity for them to address a recession, which could 
make prices decline further limits them. I mean, there's only so far they can lower rates. So in other words, they will not have the cover to raise rates to then lower them in the future when they need to. I was shocked sometime last year, Rosengren, the Fed's Rosengren on a panel said, we're raising rates because we need to get them to a level so that when the next recession comes, we can lower them again, which to me sounded like the Marx Brothers when they talk about a contract. You know, it's like, I don't like the first clause, you know, that kind of thing. It, it, it makes sense when you think about the idea that we need to get economic growth and economic pricing to a level so that if things retrench, we have tools to fight it. But it doesn't make sense that you think if we don't have inflation, we need to try to get ahead of something that just isn't there. Is it also because they don't seem to live in the real world? I mean, because you're, the scenario you're describing, I would imagine, is pretty sympathetic to just about everybody that has to go out and pay for stuff. The, the average bear doesn't look at CPI X food and energy. No. We look at food and energy. And you don't mean bears in bear market. Yes, you mean exactly. as in yogi. As in yogi. I mean, the average individual is. They do eat food and they probably use some form of fossil fuel. Yeah. And when you say, oh, well, there's no inflation in clothing, well, we're not actually clothes horses and changing our outfits. You only need every one week pair so. of something there after a go. while, right? Uh, and one of the things about the CEO or about um, the Fed's inflation um, factor is. The, the housing component of the inflation is not about housing prices, it's about rent. Right, rental equivalency, right? Rental equivalency. So when the housing prices were off the charts, that wasn't showing up in the inflation data when you and I and everyone else realized when we looked to go from our home to perhaps another, that was real inflation. And that was that stings when it looks Right, like and it's not as if you do that on a regular basis. No. It's not as if you go, oh, gee, it's so much less expensive, I think I'll move down the block. The the average mortgage, the average 30-year mortgage gets turned over every seven years. So let's assume that's a five to 10-year decision. It it stings. You know, when, when rates go from four to 6% or whatever, that that's painful. Quickly, uh, yes. Secretary of the Treasury, Steven Mnuchin, do you buy this idea that he's trying to walk Back some of his comments about the dollar and that, as he says, they were also taken out of context? I, I don't think that when someone says to you as bluntly and as uh, 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 concisely as that question was asked, that he was taken out of context. Okay. So you don't think anybody, that, that the president's now effort to say, well, no, 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 that we really do want a strong dollar. Could it be a negotiating tactic? Uh, it, it's very possible because he's at Davos and he's face to face with a lot of officials that this could have been a little bit of an embarrassing moment for him. But I think uh, once he gets back home, we'll probably hear how they really feel. Well done. Thanks very much. Thank uh, always you. a pleasure. Have a My great pleasure. weekend. You Vincent Signorella is our global macro strategist uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence and uh, giving us a little bit of a detail on the Bank of Japan's president. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. There were just 237 initial public offerings in 2017 in the United States. Now, that compares to more than 2,000 listings on foreign markets. Could that actually change as a result of a change in policy at the Securities and Exchange Commission. Here to help us understand the situation is Ben Bain, our financial regulations reporter for Bloomberg. He joins us from our Washington, D.C. bureau, and Ben can be followed on Twitter at Ben Bain. Well, Ben, maybe just describe the current situation about shareholders in companies and their ability to bring lawsuits to sue those companies and what kind of a tool that has been for shareholders in the past. Sure. Good morning. Thanks a lot. So, I mean, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, just 237 IPOs in the U.S. Uh, uh, last year, that compares with uh, almost 1,000 in 1996. So kind of going back to when uh, SEC Chairman Jay Clayton was, was picked by, by, by Donald Trump to, to take the job, and, and in his initial kind of eight months or so on the job, he's highlighted this uh, as something that he's going to be focused on. He wants to increase public markets. One issue that for the longest time business groups, particularly the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, have, have really hammered on as a deterrent um, to companies going public is the ability for, um, for plaintiffs, shareholders, um, you know, in this case, to band together uh, in class action suits and, and, and sue companies. Um, from the Chamber of Commerce's perspective and other business groups, they say a lot of times these are frivolous lawsuits and, and they really end up, uh, you know, dragging on the economy. On the other side of the coin, investor advocate groups, um, you know, some of the big groups that represent state pension funds, for example, see these class action suits as one of the key checks they have and the key ways they have uh, to push back against, uh, against companies. So, so this was something that all kind of came to a head um, back in 2012. Uh, you know, private equity giant Carlyle tried to include um, a clause in its, its registration documents for its IPO that basically would have forced um, shareholders into arbitration. Um, it would have said they have to basically deal with the company outside of court. They couldn't go to federal court to bring their grievances. The SEC at the time, uh, under the Obama administration, uh, ended up basically saying, you know, we're not going to fast track your registration if you do that. There was a lot of pushback. Democratic lawmakers on the Hill, um, you know, wrote letters. And, and eventually Carlisle backed off, pulled the clause, and they ended up IPOing without it. We're hearing now that... Um, the SEC is uh, is privately, you know, indicating that, it, that it's open to reconsidering this, and this would probably be one of the biggest things that they could do, um, at least if you talk to, to to kind of business groups to to encourage more IPOs. Now, wasn't there a report you note in your uh, in your article that the Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin has weighed in on this? What did he say? Yeah, so I mean, you know, one thing that uh, the Treasury Department did last year is, is they issued these reports, which are kind of like a, a high-level guide for how the Trump administration sees uh, financial regulators and, and where they want them to go. And one of the things they did in the report on capital markets, which focused on the SEC, was they basically encouraged the SEC and state regulators to take a look at this issue and, and said that, you know, this could very well be a way 
to uh, you know to encourage uh, more public companies. So certainly, the SEC certainly has the cover politically from the Trump administration uh, to do this. The, the Trump administration has already gone on the record and said, "Well, yeah, we you know we think it's it's a good idea to take a look at this again." Now, you interviewed a gentleman named Kevin Kennedy, a partner at uh, Simpson Thatcher in Palo Alto, the law firm there. What did he tell you? I mean, he, he said, I mean, uh, you know, just uh, like like you hear from a lot of um, a lot of lawyers, uh, you know, who represent, uh, you know, would be issuers that that this would be kind of a major a major change. Um, you know, this is something that uh, you know companies have have for a long time uh, complained about, and um, you know, and, and and he said that you know he's heard instances of of SEC staff, uh, you know, basically encouraging companies to come forward with uh, with some proposals that. That would include these uh, type of arbitration clauses. It's not necessarily a done deal. It's not to say that uh, the SEC has, you know, come down one way or another. But, but what we understand is that, um, you know, there's definitely a willingness to to revisit this issue, which was which was very contentious and, and very heated back in 2012. Well, the uh, chairman, as you mentioned, Jay Clayton, he's got a lot of experience in this particular area because he was a lawyer who worked on Alibaba Group Holdings initial public offering, correct? That's right. That's right. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's, he's a Wall Street deals lawyer. And, uh, you know, and from the very beginning, um, you know, he has fashioned himself as someone who uh, wanted to use his position at the SEC uh, to deal with, uh, to really focus on um, public markets. He, he's a believer, and he says it over and over again in his public comments, that um, if companies go public earlier, they offer people opportunities that, that they wouldn't otherwise. He hasn't come out and said, you know, he, he hasn't, he, he said he doesn't want to uh, do anything to, to curb private markets, but he's obviously looking for carrots he can give to companies uh, to come, to, to go public. And, you know, pretty much anyone you talk to, either on the side of uh, people who think that, you know, they, they really want these class action lawsuits, they see them as an important check on, on corporations, or business groups like the Chamber of Commerce who, who you know, want nothing more than, than these forced arbitration clauses, they see this as a, as a real big issue. So if this goes forward, it's certainly something that's, that, that, you know, that's going to play out um, with a lot of interest here in Washington and elsewhere. Clearly. And uh, just quickly, uh, he, who does he is selected to run the SEC unit that oversees corporate disclosures? Yeah, so he so so he hired um, um, William uh, Hinman, um, who's also a uh, you know a well-known lawyer um, uh, out in Palo Alto, who's worked on a lot of these deals too. So certainly no stranger to some of these issues, and um, and and it's certainly something they're looking at. Thanks very much for being with us. Ben Bain is our financial regulations reporter for Bloomberg News. Joining us from our Washington bureau, you can follow him on Twitter at Ben Bain. Now time to turn to a non-public company, and this would be Dell Technologies. It is just four years since Michael Dell uh, took the company private, and here to help us understand why they would want to go public again is our own Anand Srinivasan, our senior semiconductor and hardware analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And Anand, uh, you didn't get much sleep last night because the call came down that, gee, maybe Dell is going to consider going public yet again. Why would they do this? 
So multiple reasons, to be quite honest. One is uh, perhaps they want to be leaner and reduce some of their debt. Perhaps they want to be more futuristic, pivot the company towards um, more of a cloud model, um, or um, it could be the uh, an old school reason simply to deleverage and put a moat around their existing businesses so that they can operate better. Now, each of these goals can be fulfilled through one or more large complex transactions, as is always the case when Dell seems to be involved. Uh, but if you look at their stated goal to become the essential infrastructure company, as they advertise, is they want to keep large pieces of what they already own and perhaps do a full company IPO. So if you look at the pieces of the pie, they have a PC segment, they have an infrastructure segment, they have a services business, which is highly attached to the previous two segments, and then they have the software segment. Um, again, there are two pieces there. One is the pivotal, more cloud-oriented um, business, and then they have the very popular public VMware business, of which they own roughly about uh, a, an economic interest of about 28%. So when you put all of this together, this could be well in excess of an $80 billion company from a, from a valuation standpoint, well in excess of that. So the question is, if you want to deleverage that, um, how, which pieces are you going to try and monetize? Are you going to sell off a piece of the uh, infrastructure business? Are you trying to monetize a piece of the software business that you don't want? And then potentially use those funds to option A, deleverage, Option B, buy back more of the pieces of the pie that they don't own so that they become a more holistic, quote-unquote, infrastructure um, infrastructure company or essential infrastructure company. Okay, so uh, you mentioned the VMware stake. Uh, they, I believe, that was a $67 billion deal. So the company, Dell Technologies, has what, about $46 billion in debt currently? So if you look at the the uh, they have roughly about fifty three billion dollars of debt I beg and your EBITDA pardon. of about eight uh, eight billion, so roughly about uh, 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 six point seven seven times um, leverage. So uh, leverage is a key question uh, here. If you want to deleverage or if you want to um, buy back more of VMware, for example, you have to find the money somewhere, and you could potentially monetize a different piece of the pie to bring VMware back in-house. Is it also because they just want to maybe Silver Lake, which is the private equity firm that uh, helped them go Once private? They want to get out. They'd like to make their money. Absolutely. So um, and, and that could w very well be a reason. Um, the question is there's multiple options on the table. So option A is to punt pieces of the legacy business. Option B is to um, IPO the whole company. Option C is to punt pieces of the software business. Um, and option D, E, and F could be combinations of A, B, and C. So you have multiple different options here. The question is, what does Dell want to be? Um, do you want to have a holistic PC infrastructure services plus software business, which is quite the opposite route of what HPQ and HPE have done? Or do you want to be a sharper, leaner company, keep the infrastructure, punt the PCs, punt the software, um, or monetize pieces of different pies? So you've got a bunch of different options. And to be quite honest, um, um, we don't know what Dell wants to be. 
So we can't really draw any conclusions until they tell us exactly what their strategy is. Absolutely. We know what the pieces are worth. We just don't know what pieces are going to stay on the table, what pieces are going to be printed. All right. Well, thanks very much, Anand Srinivasan. I'm sure they're going to ruin one of your other late nights uh, by doing it at the very last minute. Anand Srinivasan is our senior semiconductor and hardware analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, talking about Dell Technologies and the potential for the company to go public once again. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.